This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Every year, the federal government spends almost $450 billion annually to buy basic goods and services. Today, more than ever, the U.S. government must ensure that it spends money wisely and eliminates waste and abuse of taxpayer dollars. With more than one out of every $6 of federal government spending going to contractors, it is imperative that the federal government leverages its buying power drives more consistent practices across federal agencies, shares information and reduces duplication, while providing better results for the American taxpayer. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, in the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, plays a central role in shaping the policies and practices federal agencies use to acquire the goods and services they need to carry out their responsibilities. Why is federal acquisition so complex? What is category management and how does it benefit federal acquisition? How is the federal government driving innovation in acquisition? And what is being done to strengthen government industry relationships? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Anne Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within OMB. Uh, Welcome, Anne. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. So before we uh, delve into specific initiatives that you're pursuing, could you give us an overview of the mission of the Office of Management and Budget, and how is it organized? Sure. So OMB's mission is to serve the president in implementing his vision across the executive agencies. So OMB is the largest office within the Office of Management and Budget, and the director of OMB, who is Sean Donovan, reports directly to the president. Um, As the name suggests, it's divided between the management side and the budget side. So the management team uh, oversees and coordinates areas like procurement, which I run, uh, financial management, information technology, uh, personnel and performance management. There's a budget team that executes on the president's budget. Uh, There's also a team that uh, manages regulations across government. And I'd like to transition to your specific role uh, within OMB. What is the mission of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy OFPP. And would you tell us more about the duties and responsibilities of its administrator? Sure. So the office was created by Congress in 1974. And just for fun, I decided to read the floor debate around uh, when it was created. And uh, former Senator Lawton Childs talked about the need to curb duplicative agency spending practices that have kept the taxpayer from getting his dollar's worth. And I think that mission is still so relevant today, and it ties back to a lot of the um, actions that we're taking right now in the office 
The overall goal of the office is to increase the economy and efficiency and effectiveness of federal acquisitions. And the statute outlines some specific areas uh, where the administrator plays a leading role, such as helping to promote and advance small business participation. The administrator oversees the federal procurement data. Uh, The administrator chairs several government-wide councils, including the Chief Acquisition Officers Council uh, and the Category Management Leadership Council, something I created that is not in statute, but an important council that I run. And it also talks about the administrator chairing something called the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council. And each time the president issues an executive order or a law is passed, there's normally a regulation that follows. And so the council works towards implementing that consistently across government. So with that important mission, what are maybe the top three management challenges you've faced and have you sought to address those challenges? Sure. So I would say one of the greatest challenges, but also opportunities, mm-hmm. is the technology piece, right? The rapidly changing world of technology and how do we how do we catalyze and convene both the, the private sector and, and government to think about the best ways to use technology to better serve the citizens? I think a second challenge for any administrator is just the sheer size and scope of the federal acquisition space. So we are larger than any company or any federal procurement system in the world. We spend $440 billion a year, and that's spread across 37,000 contracting officers around the globe. So just the, the sheer size and scope of it is, is pretty significant. And I'd say the third challenge is generally just a culture within federal acquisitions of being very rules-based, very risk-adverse. It's very much a check-the-box mentality. And when you think back to the first challenge that I talked about of how to take advantage of the rapidly changing world of technology, being very rules-based and uh, risk-adverse would seem contrary to sort of taking advantage of of the rapid changing technology. So, and along with the challenges you've encountered, uh, most government-wide efforts can be fraught with unanticipated or unexpected surprises. Uh, to that end, what uh, what has surprised you most during your tenure at OMB? I had worked in two agencies prior to coming to OMB at the federal level. I'd worked at Department of Commerce and uh, General Services Administration and worked with some incredibly talented people. I would say I was surprised at the pace um, at which people work at OMB, and uh, it is an equally talented group of people. And I think about some of the career employees at OMB who have been there decades, and the fact that they've been able to perform at such high levels at such a intense pace for so many years, it's really quite remarkable. So you kind of hinted at what you've done before. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about your career path? I think you were at state government, too, as well. Sure. So I've worked in uh, various public service roles for, gosh, 30 years. But the last 15 years, I've been in state government and federal government. So prior to that, I was on Capitol Hill, worked at nonprofits. It was 
incredibly interesting going from state government to federal government. So I joined the state government under Governor Rendell, and Pennsylvania is my home state. So it was fun going back. I'd been in D.C. for a long time. So moved to Harrisburg for eight years to work for Governor Rendell, and I joined the General Services Administration equivalent at the state level. It was called Department of General Services. And they are the operating arm of the state government. And Governor Rendell gave us a mandate to try to find several billion dollars in savings as the operational branch. And so I served as chief of staff there and then transitioned to deputy secretary of procurement and administration. So I oversaw several large statewide operations, including um, procurement. And we centralized procurement within the state of Pennsylvania. So when we entered, it was very similar to the federal space with positions uh, throughout all the uh, agencies and very fragmented, um, decentralized buying. So we created a shared services center modeled after the private sector in the state of Pennsylvania within my agency. Um, It's interesting because at the time, Pennsylvania was spending about $4 billion a year, and I used to feel like that was a big number until I came to the federal (laughs) space, and I realized that's not that large. Uh, And then I went from from the state of Pennsylvania, where I was working on acquisitions, to the Obama administration, where I joined Department of Commerce, and I was hired to work on acquisition reform in the wake of several high-profile acquisitions that had gone wrong and worked uh, with former governor and former secretary Gary Locke um, there at Commerce. And then I got a call from Dan Tangerlini a few years later, and he had just been hired at General Services Administration and was putting his team together. And so I was uh, honored to join his team as a senior advisor and as the chief acquisition officer. And then at some point, they asked me to interview for this position. So um, given your journey to where you are now, I'd like to get a better sense of your leadership uh, style. What are your, what is the characteristic of an effective leader? And maybe, you know, how have you taken some of the experience you've had in your previous tenure in the federal space and state and brought it into your current role? I would say those of us in leadership positions constantly think about how we can be a better leader. And I look to other leaders as to uh, things I want to emulate. I think Sean Donovan, the director of OMB, is an incredible leader. And I look at how he handles tough situations um, with total grace, how he focuses on management issues. He's really focused on the people and making the organization better. Um, Those, to me, are, are characteristics of a great leader. State government was a great opportunity for me because you're a big fish uh, in a little pond. And so I was thrown into a management position overseeing several hundred people, and it was really learning uh, on the job. But it was a great opportunity to think about how to drive change across uh, a workforce that had a much, a very diverse skill set. So our department had carpenters and police and electricians and construction workers, procurement people. And when you think about trying to drive change across not only that agency, but across the entire enterprise, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it was about building teams. And as a leader, you have to bring together these diverse groups to drive change. And so some of the things I learned about were, one, the power of convening and collaborating groups of people to drive change. And also, I think the the importance of clear metrics and outcomes so people understand what it is you're working towards and the value of working towards those goals. Why is federal acquisition so complex? We will ask Ann Rung, 
Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within the Office of Management and Budget, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within OMB. So, Ann, you know, you mentioned earlier procurement acquisition. We're throwing around this term, and a lot of folks know maybe the other critical mission support functions of government agencies, such as finance, HR, procurement. So what is the federal, what is federal procurement or federal acquisition? And maybe you can give us a high-level overview of it. Sure. It starts with an agency identifying a need, a need to buy something, a good or service, in order to deliver on its mission. So that's the very earliest phase of an acquisition. And it goes through various stages from there of, you know, identifying the need, defining the need, asking the market to provide you with that good or service, awarding the contract, and then managing that contract. So that's at a very high level, the the process. It is not um, grants. In my world, it is just contracts for goods and services across the government. And as I said, it... It is about $440 billion a year. So whenever you talk, or I have a lot of folks on the, on, on the show, and we, we, we discuss procurement or acquisition within the federal context, uh, and I ask them, how would you describe it? They use one word, complex. What are the reasons for why it's so complex? It's a great question. When I started this job, I began by meeting with uh, my colleagues in the agencies and industry stakeholders and others about you know, their thoughts on this marketplace um, and uh, reinforcing what you said, everyone talks about the complexity of the space. And I think it is in part because we have 3,200 procurement units around the globe um, without a lot of collaboration and sharing of information. So it's very siloed. And so going back to uh, the mission of one of the missions of my office to help provide greater standardization and consistency across government, that mission is so relevant today because we are all operating in silos. And so every agency has a slightly different approach, a slightly different set of requirements for industry, um, processes that are slightly different. Um, And I think, you know, I have tried to move the government towards greater collaboration and sharing through category management, for example, to try to break down some of those silos. I mean, the overwhelming feedback from industry and other stakeholders is that, you know, our solicitations, when we describe to the market what it is we want to buy, are too long and lengthy and complicated and too government-specific. They talk about the 
complexity that comes from having several thousand contracts across government. One company in particular has over 2,300 contracts across government for very similar services. Um, For PCs, we know we have 10,000 contracts and orders against those contracts for very similar PCs. That's the complexity people are talking about. And so that's why when I was confirmed in September of 2014, Two months later, I put out a sort of a series of actions, a directive to the agencies about simplifying this space. And it was built around three areas, category management, uh, driving innovation, and building better vendor relationships, all with the goal of simplifying this space. So you kind of hinted at it, but, you know, what are some of the core challenges facing federal acquisition at a high level? Uh, so I talked a little bit about that in terms of keeping pace with technology and uh, just the sheer size of it and um, sort of the risk-adverse culture. I think when you when I tackle each of these areas, category management and innovation and vendor relationship, they all bring their own unique set of challenges. In the category management space... This is a technique that was used, is used by the private sector and the UK government, and it's quite simply a sort of a framework by which you manage um, all your areas of spend by common categories rather than individual procurement units across government. So it's all about collaboration and sharing and managing these in a in a more structured way. And so we launched category management last year. And we have um, taken a series of actions to really move that forward, um, which I'm happy to go into. Yeah, you know, uh, just uh, stepping stepping back and just going straight into it. What is category management and and, and how does it work? Sure. Um, Have you read Marie Kondo's book? She's the Japanese organizational consultant. So she's, you know, for our listeners, she has a New York Times bestseller and her YouTube videos have gone viral. And she talks about how to organize your house. And she says, rather than organizing by room, organize by category. So she says, think about clothes, for example. Instead of organizing just by your bedroom, Think about go to every room of your house and start pulling out all the clothes, and you'll find you have clothes in every room. And then you throw them on the bed, and then you're probably horrified by what you bought and how much you actually don't wear and how many designer goods you have that you didn't need and how much money you spent. And then she says, pick up the item and ask, does this bring me joy as to whether you're going to keep it or leave it? So category management is a similar process up into the question of does it bring me joy, but it's this similar idea of rather than organizing and tackling by procurement unit, we want to think of these goods and services by category. And so we have hired what we call category CEOs who are experts in that category to really think about how to organize that category better and drive savings and better performance. And the equivalent of throwing all your clothes on the bed is probably the data analytics piece where the category CEO begins with really having a better understanding of what it is we're buying and how we're buying and how we're managing those goods. That's the equivalent of throwing all your clothes on the bed. And again, we will find that we bought things that we didn't need. We'll find that we bought high-end when we didn't need high-end. We'll find out that things we haven't worn things in years, we haven't used things in years. Um, And that, to me, is a very sort of similar analogy to Marie Kondo's (laughs) organizing your house. Very practical. Um, So, you know, as a follow-up, what are the goals in pursuing category management in the federal space as opposed to the home, you know? And and, and more importantly, what are some of the benefits realized, some of the implementation challenges, and how 
are you judging its success? What's the definition of success in this area? No, lots a lot of, of great questions. questions. No, no, but lots of great questions. We um, we have a very clear set of outcomes around category management. Um, we want to first drive savings. So we've set a goal to achieve 5.8 billion in savings in the IT space by the end of this calendar year. Now that will include other IT reform efforts we're taking across government, including uh, data center consolidation. So category management is just a piece of those savings numbers. But certainly savings is a big piece of this, right? We know we can be more efficient. We want to reduce contracts. So we've set a goal to reduce duplication. So in the area of PCs, for example, we know we don't need 10,000 contracts and orders against those contracts. So we issued a directive to government saying, use the existing three contracts. So we have a very clear deliverable there to move a big portion of the government to those three contracts. Another outcome that we're driving towards is just bringing more spend under management. And it's nothing, it's not that complicated of an, of an idea. It's just the idea that we want to make sure that all these categories have a CEO leading the category, that we have good data analytics and good metrics, and we're really managing these by categories. And then last but not least, we want to make sure we hit our socioeconomic goals in every category. So we want to hit our small business goals. Um I think, you know, we are doing this across a really big space. And so we understand this is a multi-year effort. But what's really neat is that I think in just a year, we've seen significant shift. I mean, one, every major federal acquisition conference has a track on category management now. I've seen companies hire category management consultants. I've seen data analytics companies organizing around these categories. So that's incredibly rewarding to see, like, we are shifting the ground here and moving towards category management. We've taken 25 actions in the last year. But to give you a couple highlights, I mentioned we announced uh, senior government executives to manage each of these categories. So they're hard at work in putting together their strategic plans for their category. We um, have taken actions against $10 billion in IT commodity spend for PCs, uh, mobile, and software. So we're in the process of releasing or have released a series of policies and actions around that space. And I've released these uh, memos in partnership with the deputy or sorry, the federal CIO. I just demoted him. The federal CIO, Tony Scott. Uh, and so he and I have put out a directive um, for PCs, as I mentioned, and it says to the agencies, no new contracts in this space. Use the existing three contracts. Move to more standard refresh cycles. Use these standard configurations. We're going to take similar actions with software and mobile devices as well, and those will be coming out in the near future. And I had a question that I'm was remiss in not mentioning category management where where's its roots did you is it a private sector concept that yes been, okay yes it's been used in the private it sector okay. and it's been used extensively in the retail industry so if you think about it we met with a former executive from Macy's and you think about these um, the retail space you know they're organized around 
furniture and, um, you know, uh, clothing, women's clothing, men's clothing, and they bind teams around each of these areas. And these teams know the supply chain. They know the emerging companies. They know their customers. They know the pricing. They know the companies on the horizon. That's the same idea that we want to implement in the federal space. The UK government picked up on this about five or six years ago and has been launching it across their space as well. Um, and because they're five years into it, we've uh, you know we've learned a lot from them and um, really valued their input on this on this journey. We've also set up a quarterly uh, summit. We're calling it a category management summit, where we bring in companies and learn best practices from them around category management. And we bring in our category managers to meet with them and share best practices. Our last summit, we brought in Johnson & Johnson, which is at least five years into category management. And the most striking thing is that we share very similar experiences. And so... Sure, they're the private sector, and they may have some advantages um, that we necessarily don't have. But at the same time, they have the same challenges in many ways. You know, a lot of these companies started out just as fragmented. They too have problems or challenges with getting people to use existing it's a change mandatory. Management issue, isn't it's it? a I change mean- management issue. I will say one of the the real highlights is that we have identified that we've saved. $2 billion from category management efforts. And that includes, in part, strategic sourcing efforts, which is a sort of component of category management. Actually, that's a great transition. Yeah. What yeah. is strategic sourcing? How does it increase savings and realize efficiency in federal acquisition? Yeah, so strategic sourcing um, is a procurement process led by a procurement executive. It's usually six or seven steps, and it begins with a commodity profile or figuring out um, you know, what are the opportunities in this particular commodity. And then it ends with a preferred supplier contract. And you usually have lower unit pricing as a result. And you get that by um, aggregating demand and and maximizing the supplier base. Or said another way, it's called buying in bulk, right? <laughs> so, you know, have everybody sort of buy together instead of individually. And you drive that price down. Um, strategic sourcing is one strategy that you can implement under category management, but category management is a much broader framework. It's much longer term. It thinks about things years out. It thinks about the entire supply chain from beginning to end. And you can implement a number of strategies of which strategic sourcing could be one. Um, it's The person running the um, categories does not have to be a procurement executive. So our IT category, for example, was recruited from industry, IT industry. That's his background, not necessarily in procurement. Our transportation lead is a transportation policy expert. And the point here is that these are business leaders. They're CEOs. And they're not just thinking about the procurement needs of that category. They're thinking about the business needs of government. And it's a much sort of broader framework under which we can pull a lot of different triggers to increase performance and save money. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the IT uh, laptops and things that you're doing with Tony Scott. Is there anything else you wanted to highlight around the application of category management or is that? Yeah, no, IT is a big area for us. President Obama has really focused a lot of energy um, and initiative around improving how we buy and uh, IT. 
And in part, he has talked very eloquently uh, most recently at South by Southwest about how you, again, catalyze convene the private sector to help us think about how to make government work better. And we all recognize that improving technology means improving in part um, how we buy that technology. And so while we're launching category management across government, we've really focused in on the IT space to begin to do a really deep dive. And so in addition to the three policies that are being implemented or have been implemented around the $10 billion in PCs and mobile devices and software that we spend every year, we're also focused on a number of initiatives that came out of the FITARA legislation, uh, federal IT acquisition reform legislation recently. And one of the things it calls for is creating um, government-wide software solutions, so rather than every agency doing it independently. We set a goal to put in place two new government-wide software agreements at the end of 2015. And two more at the end of 2016. And we hit our goal for 2015, and we're on track to hit our goal for the end of 2016. How is the federal government driving innovation and acquisition? We will ask Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within OMB, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What are the benefits of adopting a shared services model? How does HHS's PCS manage the business of government? What is PSC doing to differentiate its products and services? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions with Paul Bartley, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Program Support at U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Director of its Program Support Center. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within OMB. So, Ann, uh, you know, you can't do any of the work that you're um, pursuing, any of the priorities that you're pursuing, without really having a technically competent workforce. And uh, that's really, what are some of the challenges of building a technologically uh, competent workforce? And uh, how are you supporting the federal acquisition workforce community within? It always comes back to the people, right? It's interesting. A, a colleague of mine who is a uh, procurement executive in one of the federal agencies has worked at the state level and at the local level running fairly significant sized uh acquisition operations. And he commented to me that he was incredibly impressed by the level of professionalism in the federal acquisition workforce. And there's very rigorous training. And so I am pleased to say that we have a very technically competent acquisition workforce. Where I'm focusing my energy is how to take that great skill set and, and, and you know, smarts of, of those people and help them to be more innovative so we can be better at buying IT and, and capitalizing on technology. And as I alluded to earlier, we have a culture around that's very rules-based, right, and check the box. And so how do you help that workforce become more agile and flexible um, and in their world take risks, um, even though I'd argue that none of these approaches are risky that, that we advocate? Um, there's a couple things we're doing. I mean, one, 
we have to make sure that we're helping them in creating more specialized teams, right? Our acquisition workforce are are by the most part trained to be generalist. And so when you think about the space of IT, it does require a deeper expertise. And so we launched something last year called the Digital IT Acquisition Program, DITAP. And um, it is essentially the acquisition equivalent of the U.S. digital services, except that we recruited our... um, our individuals um, from the agencies who are career contracting officers. And that was intentional because we want this to last and we want this to be embedded within the agencies and, and last for years to come beyond any single administration. And so we used um, a training program that we developed in partnership with industry. And we uh, put out a challenge through challenge.gov and said to the public, help us think about how better ch- to train the workforce in digital IT acquisitions. Uh, we selected a company based on uh, narrowing down the list to three, having them come in and do a demo to us. So run a classroom for us, show us how you would train the workforce. What was kind of interesting about it is we had the United States Digital Services in the room receiving the training to help us evaluate whether this was the right approach. We selected a company. And the training in and of itself is agile in the sense that we didn't develop all of it up front, but rather it's being rolled out as we understand kind of the levels of the individuals and how they're progressing. And so that in in and of itself is an agile approach. And we're using not just classroom training, but collaboration and virtual demos and um, online as much as possible and really trying to take advantage of the latest training techniques. That class graduates um, in the next few weeks. We'll be starting our second class shortly thereafter. And so one of the goals that I set for our team was to have 60 newly trained certified digital IT acquisition specialists out back in their agencies really touching acquisitions to make a difference. And so that's just one example of how we're trying to help the workforce think differently and try new approaches in the acquisition space. Yeah, and, and the other thing is uh, continuing on with driving innovation in acquisition, there were other ways you're doing it, other tools you're providing, like the Tech Far Handbook and you mentioned the Digital Services Playbook. How do they factor into your efforts? And perhaps you could highlight some of the key sure. successes in this area. Sure. So they, they really all tie together. So we think Think about we need to provide our workforce with tools. Um, and that's where the tech far comes into place in the playbook. So the playbook is quite simply a series of plays, digital plays that one could play in the acquisition um, workspace um, to better procure digital IT services. The tech far is taking those plays and explaining how you can use existing authorities in the federal acquisition regulations to do those plays. So you have the authority. We're just pointing out to you in a very simple way how you can use those. So a great example is um, we set it up in a Q&A format. And so one of the questions is, federal acquisition regulations say that I've got to define all my requirements up front. In other words, be very specific about what it is I want to buy. The agile approach is you write a much shorter statement of objectives and think about the outcomes. 
How do I reconcile that? And so we answer that and we say under this section of the federal acquisition regulations, it says you can do this and therefore you can do a statement of objectives. And so we really walk people through and give them the tools that they need. And at every conference um, that I've been to lately, there's always a team talking about the tech FAR and it's being incorporated into the digital IT training. The second piece is the people piece where I talked about the digital IT training. So the tech FAR is part of their curriculum and part of their materials. Um, And the third piece for us is how do you create the space for those people to innovate and test and experiment? And that really comes through our latest initiative called the Acquisition Innovation Labs. And just as it sounds, it's really a space for people to test and implement uh, new approaches to um, to the IT space, in particular IT acquisition space. And so, you know, creating a safe space for people to apply, you know, emerging best practices in industry and apply them broadly across the agency with the support of the leadership. That's the idea behind the acquisition innovation. I'd like to continue on that. Yeah. So what, what exa- how do they operate? I know they're sort of new. You're piloting them, I understand. Or, or they've been around or... Um, so we just issued a policy saying that we expect the 24 CFO act agencies to stand up these acquisition innovation labs. And we describe them as a pathway to test and implement more innovative approaches to acquisitions with a really strong emphasis on IT acquisitions. And the pilot piece of it was we said we're, we're looking for six or seven forward-thinking agencies that are setting up these labs to uh, participate in a pilot with um, the United States Digital Services and the 18F team, a group of technologists within GSA, um, to uh, allow them to coach these new integrated teams within the Acquisition Innovation Labs. And we received funding for it so it doesn't cost the agencies anything. Um, so that's the pilot piece of it. We recognize that you don't want to sort of mandate innovation, right? Mm-hmm. It seems a little bit counterintuitive. And so what we did was we set up um, principles. So we didn't want to be overly prescriptive to the agencies and kind of how they think about these labs. Um, so our principles were around, you know, make IT a focus area. Um, start small and grow over time. Um, encourage but not mandate use of the labs by your employees. Um, um, think about and obtain vendor input. That's a really important part of being agile. And then, you know, recognize the contributions by the members of the workforce when they've done well. And so we gave them a flexibility around those principles. So think about that as you set up these labs. Um, we asked agencies to identify an uh, acquisition innovation advocate, AIA. Um, and then establish this lab, and then we would pull together a council of these advocates to share best practices. We've also asked agencies to come back to us this summer when we run a process called FedStat, where we meet with all the agency leaderships and go over some statistics around how they're performing around management areas. And we ask them to come back with some success stories and how they're doing. We also asked agencies to share their information in a new online portal called the Acquisition Gateway, which is supporting category management. So it contains critical contracting information and best practices around each of the categories 
space, but we also have a new innovation space. And we want people to populate that with their success stories and their tools and their best statements of objectives so we can share and collaborate. Have you received any lessons learned or any sort of insights? Or? Yeah, I think um, you know the idea for this came off of some existing labs that are already underway in the agency. So Health and Human Services launched something several years ago called the Buyers Club. And it was run by their um, – the entire initiative of sort of being more experimental was run by their former chief technology officer. And he, as part of this, set up this buyer's club, which was really one person, Mark Nager, who is going around and sort of helping his agency and advising and consulting on how to approach things in a more agile way. And so we saw some great successes there where – um, one example is he took a number of legacy systems and consolidated them down into one uh, web content management system. But instead of doing it in the traditional way of putting out a lengthy request for proposals and contractors submit a lengthy you know, response back and it goes through a lengthy process, <laughs> uh, instead he, uh, he and his team just put out a very short statement of objectives. This is what I hope to achieve. Uh, the companies were asked to just submit a very short concept paper in response, very short. And then they narrowed it down to the top performers, um, the finalists, and they gave them each some money. And he worked with his CFO in partnership with this and said, develop a prototype and come in and demo that for us. And that's how they made their final selection. And in the end, it was a very fast process. It was a painless process. Industry liked that approach because it was much more streamlined and easy for them and made perfect sense. And that's the kind of thing that to the private sector may not sound that innovative or different, but for us, it's a radical change. Um, and we want that to be broadened and, and replicated across government, just thinking differently. It's an interesting segue into your efforts and one of the priorities you have, which is um, a more frequent and uh, constructive engagement in industry. What are you doing in this area? How are you building a stronger vendor relationship? What are some of the uh, uh, initiatives that you're doing, Acquisition 360 and stuff like that? A lot of this great work began with my predecessors. Okay. Dan Gordon released, a uh, former administrator under President Obama, released uh, something called Mythbusters that industry still talks about. And it was, it was simply telling the acquisition workforce what you can do with uh, in, in regards to communications with industry. And I think there's a lot of fear in talking to industry. And the reality is you can have lots of communication and you should. So what we've tried to do is build on that good work. And so one of the things we did was partner with a group called Act IAC on a new industry government series called Lifting the Curtain. And it was simply trying to better understand each other's perspectives on key acquisition issues and areas. And so we held one on, you know, why companies make bid or no bid decisions, which I attended. Uh, we had one on market research versus market intelligence. We had one this week on uh, technical evaluation committees. And it's it's enlightening the things that you hear and learn. And it to me, it always comes back to just very simple things like the need to better communicate. Uh, in addition to that, we wanted to uh, create more formal channels for industry to give us input. And so we created the first ever transaction-based um, survey tool for industry to give us feedback on specific IT acquisitions um, and their viewpoint on that acquisition pre-award. And so we developed a standard set of questions 
And we said to uh, the agencies, we need you to issue this um, on a certain set of IT procurements, which represented in total 5% of all our IT procurements. And what made it a 360 is that we asked program offices to provide feedback on that acquisition on how the contracting office did, and vice versa, the contracting office to tell us how the program office did on the same IT acquisition. So we have a full 360 view with industry, contracting office, and program management offices providing feedback. We received over 1,100 industry responses from round one of that survey. We're expanding it this year to ask agencies to issue the survey on all IT acquisitions over 500,000. Uh, that's going to represent 40% of all of our IT buys acquisition. Um, and uh, we should get about 6,000 responses if we had the same rate we did on round one. And the data is designed to tell us um, where we may be a little bit more challenged. And our office needs to think about ways we can help lift up and uh, improve in that area. And also where we may be doing well. Um, the preliminary set of information, as well as what we've learned from talking to industry um, through our own research um, and other means, tells us that there are some areas where we could improve. One area in particular was around debriefings. Um, and so, you know, that's a really important area when you think about wanting to keep companies in the marketplace and all, also wanting to bring new companies into the marketplace and also helping companies to grow and get better. It always comes down to their debriefing. Companies want to know what they can do to improve. How can they be better next time around? And the only way we're going to help companies to compete better is by talking to them and doing really good debriefings. And some agencies do this very well already. And so our goal is to try to help um, them share the best practices across government. You know, when you think of debriefings after um, the post-award um, uh, how does how do you do that? Or you can almost see it sort of contracting in the reverse when you have so many protests. Is there a connection between the lack of debriefings and the rise in protests? It's a great question and one that I would love to know the answer to, and it requires digging through the data a little bit. But it would intuitively feel like, there, there, yes, that not talking to industry and not having debriefings might lead to a greater number of protests, but I have no data to support that. However, I do know that um, industry, and I think government in the end, finds it incredibly beneficial when you can talk to a company and help them to become better by helping them understand why it is that they may not have been selected. That only helps everyone. And I personally like personal debriefings. Now, I know as opposed to over the phone or certainly in writing, but I understand also that contracting officers have lots of companies and sometimes with large acquisitions, you've, it just may not be possible. But you know, as I said, some agencies are doing this in really neat ways and have really interesting trainings around it using avatars and YouTube <laughs> videos. And um, and we've tried to highlight that through the Chief Acquisition Officers Council, where we spent one of the sessions talking about what are some of the best practices around debriefings. What is being done to strengthen government industry relationships in procurement? We will ask Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within OMB, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Contract expenditures amount to 16% of total federal spending. Purchases range from simple products like office supplies or landscaping to more complex products like advanced weapon systems and program management services. As the difficulties confronting the federal government become increasingly complicated, so too will the types of services and goods that they need to address these challenges. The federal government is increasingly acquiring products that have qualities that cannot be clearly or easily defined in advance and that are difficult to verify after the product or service has been delivered. These products are called complex products. The acquisition of complex products requires more sophisticated contracting approaches. What are the challenges of acquiring complex products? What lessons can be learned from the Coast Guard's Deep Water Program? And how can government executives most effectively manage complex acquisitions? We'll explore these questions and so much more through the works of the research team Trevor Brown, Matt Potofsky, and David Vance Lyke, authors of the recent book Complex Contracting, Government Purchasing in the Wake of the U.S. Coast Guard's Deepwater Program. Brown, Potofsky, and Vance Lyke discuss the promise and perils of government contracting while providing wide-ranging practical advice on complex acquisition. I'm happy to welcome to our show Trevor Brown. Trevor, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into specifics, um, I'd like to explore the importance of acquisition in the pursuit of government agency objectives. A lot of folks who listen to the show may be familiar with other mission support functions like financial management or HR. But what is acquisition in the federal context, and how is it a key strategic enabler for government to get its missions accomplished? So I think most people, when they think of acquisition, think more simply of purchasing, just buying simple stuff like paper clips and um, copy paper or office supplies. Uh, But the reality is is that increasingly uh, federal agencies need critical uh, goods and services to be able to perform their core missions. So in the report I wrote for IBM, I highlighted the, um, the Blackhawk helicopter in the interdiction of Osama bin Laden and the ultimate taking his body out of the compound. Without the Black Hawk, the mission doesn't succeed. 
Today, the thing that's probably most on people's mind is the uh, healthcare.gov website. In the absence of that website working successfully, the Affordable Care Act doesn't work successfully. Now, you probably don't think about that when you're buying a website. You think, oh, I'm just buying a website. But no, you're buying a critical, integral part of your program. And, and that's what acquisition is now. It's acquiring essential goods and services to be able to perform basic mission functions inside organizations. So what is the federal acquisition process? How does it work? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? So an expert would tell you there are hundreds of steps in this process. Uh, I'll break it down simply into three phases. The first is the pre-award phase. That's everything that happens before you buy the product. So that's determining uh, whether you want to make the product internally or you want to go out to market. If you decide you're going to go out to market, that's surveying the market to see what's available. Uh, That's meeting with the ultimate consumers of that product within the agency to see what is it they need, which ultimately ends with you, the purchaser, defining what it is you want to the degree that you can. We want it to be a certain size, shape, and do all sorts of different things. Federal contract officials call that the requirements definition portion of the pre-award phase. The second, once you've decided what you want to buy, is the award phase. And you can think of that as the literal transaction. That's putting the RFP out, the request for proposal that describes the product and the way it will be purchased. And then it's meeting with potential vendors, recruiting people. It's almost a sales pitch to the vendors or potential vendors to come forward with proposals. Then it's selecting who's the winner going to be. Then the third phase and final phase is the post-award phase. It's everything that happens now that we've purchased the product. For some kinds of products, the post-award phase is literally just the delivery of, here's your box of paper clips. For other kinds of products, things like information technology systems uh, that take a long time to produce, the post-award phase, once we've selected the vendor, means managing a relationship with the vendor. Um, And as I say in this report, and I'm not the first to say it, buying is managing. Um, So the whole procurement process is a management activity. It's managing a series of relationships and potential relationships, uh, and those are management competencies and requirements. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within OMB. So, Anne, you know, we're at the time where we're looking at the, on the horizon, uh, another administration will be coming into uh, into office. So, you know, one of the questions I'm asking most of my guests who join me at this stage is, what are you doing to ensure that the reforms that you've pursued and the improvements that you've made uh, to federal acquisition are sustained into the next administration? And I've, you know, this is the question I ask myself too at the state level because our our um, administration came to an end under Governor Rendell. And improving acquisitions and making government work better 
should not be viewed through the lens of a political party. It is not a political issue. And so I have great faith that our good efforts are going to continue under any administration because it makes sense. And it's what industry is already doing. And it's what other governments are already doing. Some of the things we think about, um, in a, you know, in addition to it just being good government and it makes sense, uh, we have purposely created a lot of these programs using career employees. And so each one of our categories, with the exceptional one, um, is led by a career senior government executive. Um, one is led by a term employee. Um, our digital IT acquisition training are career employees. So this is... This was very intentional in that we want this to be sustained beyond this administration for many years to grow and for many years to come. We're also thinking about because we're a policy organization, we've made sure that we've taken time to do the due diligence around creating the policies, thinking about the regulations or regulatory changes we need to make. Uh, we're thinking through, is there some congressional angle here, some way to enact some of this into, into law? And so... We're exploring all the normal channels, but I think in the end, uh, it's just about um, good government not being a Democratic or Republican issue. Mm -hmm. So when you look out over the horizon, kind of thinking about some of the key issues that will affect the acquisition community in the federal space, what do you think some of the, some of the new things that might happen or some of the things that we need to anticipate? You know, I go back to the very beginning of our discussion around the cha rapid changes in technology are the biggest challenges for the acquisition space. How do we be nimble and fast enough and flexible enough to keep pace so we can you know, better serve our citizens? And it's incredible when you think about how technology has just changed how we do business. You know, the power of cloud, mobile devices anywhere, anytime. Uh, you know, channels that allow us to reach across the globe, real-time information. It's changing how we do business, and we have to keep pace with that. And that's, to me, the, the greatest challenge. The greatest challenge. So I asked you earlier, this is, uh, what surprised you most mm -hmm. in your current role? What have you enjoyed most during your current stint in government? Absolutely the people. Um, it is really humbling to see how smart and talented my my colleagues are, uh, both state, federal level. Um, I would challenge anyone to read about the winners of the um, SAMIs, which are the Service uh, to America Medal winners, um, one of the most prestigious federal government awards, and uh, learn about the people that are, you know, fighting to stop human trafficking or, you know, eradicating polio in India or you know, providing health care to veterans. And it's incredibly inspiring and humbling, and that's been the best part of my job. So and what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I would say, you know, considering the people I just described, the SAMI recipients, we want the best and the brightest. We want you to work alongside these incredible people and continue to make government the amazing, amazing group of people that it is. And uh and we need, we need, you know, the young and the bright and the old. We need everyone, uh, the best and the brightest, to help us think about how to make government work better for the people that it serves. Well, great. Thanks for coming in today. I appreciate it. It's wonderful having you. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you very much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy within the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. 
Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the benefits of adopting a shared services model? How does HHS's PCS manage the business of government? What is PSC doing to differentiate its products and services? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions with Paul Bartley, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Program Support at U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Director of its Program Support Center. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.